Lindsay. Martha. We're here with episode three of season three of the Reflective Teacher Podcast. We have an awesome guest today. Yes, we have Anna Hartman um, as our guest, and she's a director of the Paradigm Project and one of its founders. She also works with JUF as the director of Early Childhood Excellence, and she's just in general an avid advocate for EC educators. Yeah, we're always saying she's like a fairy godmother Oprah of early childhood education and professional development. She's yeah. like, you get PD, you get PD, <laughs> you get a book, you get a book. Anyway, she's here with us in our interview today to talk about early childhood education policy and advocacy. And um, we are, this is such an important topic to us because Anna talks about how advocacy and policy is important for families and centers, but also for teachers, which we are. So this stuff is very near and dear to our heart. She also talks a lot about, well, we all talk and you'll see in the interview, um, she talks about the American, um, the American Families Plan. So we're really hoping, we're really hoping um, that you check out some of the resources that Anna lists. And we know that you're already an advocate if you're listening to this podcast. And um, if you're interested in getting more involved, we give lots of resources on how you can do that. So without any further ado, here's our interview with Anna Hartman. Okay, well, Anna, you're here today to chat with us about advocacy and policy in early childhood education. Actually, like, I'm so excited. I, I know we both are, but, like, I'm really excited to chat about this, but I don't know anything about, like, advocacy or even, like, much about policy, which is, like, I think it's something we should all be armed with, right? Yeah. Because, like... I know. I was like, this is, like, probably one of the most exciting interviews because thinking I'll probably learn the most. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really am coming into this knowing very little. Yeah. But I would like to know so much more. <laughs> so, I guess what we'll do to get started is, why don't you give, like, a quick little, like, intro to you and, like, anything that you want to share um, about, like, what you do now and your background and things like that, and then we can get into, like, some, like, definitions and some chatting about advocacy and policy. Great. I want to just like get out of the way that I feel nervous. Um, just that I feel nervous. I'm not an expert in this. I can tell my story a little bit, and I think that can we can construct some of this um, as we go, and I think that'll be good. I love yeah, that. Perfect. Yes. Okay. Don't be nervous. Yeah. I was like, this uh, is a well, I am. This is <laughs> a learning experience for all. Yeah. Of us. Yeah. No, it'll be great. Great. Perfect. Well, <laughs> God help us all. Okay. Well, I can tell you a little bit about me. <laughs> Um, I'm an early childhood educator, practitioner, activist. I live in Chicago. I'm born and raised in Atlanta. It's a part of my identity. Um, I have been a director. I have been a teacher. Um, but mostly I've been someone really passionate about high quality early childhood education, especially in the Jewish community. And that passion has led me through my work and many of the years of my career, that passion has led me to network with other people, make networks for other people to get together uh, and really find social ways for people to be able to forge positive change in the field of early childhood. 
Today, what that looks like is I run a national network that's pretty grassroots called the Paradigm Project. It networks Jewish early childhood educators from around the country. And I'm the director of early childhood excellence at the Jewish United Fund in Chicago. And that means that I work with a team to support the 36 Jewish early childhood centers in greater Chicagoland, doing things like professional development, uh, strategic planning, uh, leadership development, and just generally making this a great field for people to work in. That's amazing. Um, just to let everyone listening know that <laughs> Anna is also, and her partner that we work with a lot, Jenna, is they're fairy godmothers, and they just kind of, you know, poof into your space and give you amazing opportunities, and they're incredible. Yeah. So okay, you def- forgot, you left that out. Yeah, Anna. we definitely benefit from all of the amazing professional development you offer yeah (laughs) big benefiting i love that i was thinking recently that uh the professional development work we do has so much been about finding really fun and generative and positive ways to make people love the field and also to make the field really amazing and make it really reach its its potential Um, but so much of that work that we do is social and caring and joyful because it also makes us love the work. Yeah. In the COVID, in, yeah, and in the COVID environment, it's been a new challenge because we don't get to get together. We're right. not eating together and laughing together and traveling together. Yeah, it's like it's really interesting because you kind of like forget about how professional development used to be. <laughs> like I feel like we've just been in this like Zoom world for so long now that you forget mm-hmm. about all those like amazing like social experiences and just kind of different like ways to connect that we had not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about professional and inv- yeah. uh, development like I think because it it is such an important like part of our field that is not necessarily always um you know there's not importance put on it always and I feel like that's got to be an important part of like the advocacy in early childhood, right? Is like making sure that there's like really good professional development opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, how is professional development different in our field than in other fields? Yeah. Why are we so obsessed with it? I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't either. I mean, well, part of it, I think, is that we we do very often come into this field with not all of our credentials under our belt. Totally. Um, But there's something more to it, which is that you you couldn't possibly learn it all. It's like being a medical resident. Like you couldn't graduate from medical school and be ready Mm -hmm. to do the work. You're you're constantly onboarding. Um, And and just like in medicine, the field is changing. The research is constant. And it has important policy implications because if we want to improve the quality of the work, we know that we have to uh, make sure that the, the that the people who are leading education are getting the learning that they need so that they can bring it to the children. And how do we make that happen? Do we threaten them that if you don't get this next degree, <laughs> you can't work in our field anymore? Or do we offer carrots in that we would say you will get more compensation or we will um, we'll re- we'll reimburse you for some of this? 
Um, and also, like, what are the barriers that some people might have toward getting that kind of education? Yeah. Because there's, I feel like it's so, that's so important what you said about coming, a lot of people coming into the field without all the credentials uh, under their belts. And that's so common. And I'm sure a lot of people listening will um, know what we're talking about when, you know, you see a teacher um, or a, a like an associate teacher, paraprofessional coming in and, and not having necessarily like all of the credit hours or licensure or whatever. And, or sometimes not even really like knowing very much about early childhood. Um, and I think prof- good professional development can really inspire te- people to keep going, like in the profession as a whole. Um and also, I think it can also um, help people realize that this is so much more than like babysitting, mm-hmm. yeah. and that how and and there's so much important work to be done here. Yeah, you're making me think that um, well, maybe there's a real reason why when we try to bring why maybe there's a real reason why we want people to get so much of their learning on the job. Right. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think a lot of people have written about and done research on how you learn so much more when you're in classes and as a student and in class as a teacher. Yeah. And I think that there, like that touches on some of the tensions in our field about how we believe in social constructivist learning, that we construct our learning as we go and we couldn't just be fed these things in our brains in graduate school that could prepare us. You have to have some combination of learning and teaching and doing and reflecting or else it wouldn't work. I mean, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think so. Um, again, for listeners, I was in, um, a two year with Lindsay, two year fellowship through JUF, um, that taught, um, new teachers, fellows, how to teach essentially while they were in their teaching placements within Jewish schools in the Chicago area. And Lindsay was part of the mentors of that group, the mentor teachers that helped the fellows um, and mentored them. And I would recommend that program over my like college four year early childhood education program any day. Because while I did get like, that was a great program that I went to for school it's you don't it's like gibberish until you're in a classroom yeah. it doesn't make any sense to me at yeah. least I, I feel, couldn't I couldn't have taken any of what I learned and like applied it right I feel like that's so much though of work in general right like you you gain the most from your experience in it yeah you can talk about it all day long but until you're like in it yeah like actually like doing it and experiencing it then it's just like hard to this is the same for like a businessman (laughs) are they just ready out of school it's a good question because it makes (laughs) (laughs) i think like Lindsay, you're sort of bringing up the question of well is it true then in every field and let's say it is true in every field then of course in education we should be obsessed with it more as a question because that's our business is teaching and learning right so (laughs) <laughs> we, of course, should be doing a little bit of everything. Um, the, the pre, we want to be really 
um, professionalized as a field. So mm-hmm. we want to have great credentials, but also we're looking for people of great passion and potential. And we also are thinking about equity. So we want to bring people in from anywhere and be able to move them up. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, okay, moving on from professional development, because <laughs> Lindsay and I could literally sit on that branch till the end of time. Um, let's talk about just advocacy and advocacy within early childhood education. Um, and maybe if that makes sense, like what is its relation to policy in education? So one thing I want to say to get started is thinking about policy. It's really helpful to talk to you both about this, that my job as someone who is a cheerleader for, uh, for early childhood education, my job is very policy-like in the sense that my job is to look at the challenges and the potentials before me in the field and to be able to say, what do I need to do to maximize the potential of this field? So I see where we are. I see where I try to set up ways to be thinking about what is possible in the future. And then I have to look at you know, an infinite pos- number of possibilities of how we could get there. So again, you know, is it a carrot or is it a stick? Do I, what do I, when do we give out grants? When do we instead uh, put on certain kinds of programming? Uh, When do we sponsor something ourselves, uh, put on a program ourselves, or when do we outsource to another place? When do we do something just in Chicago and when do we do something that's national? So everything is a choice and, and policy in that sense is the choices that you make in order to be able to get your vision to reality. You have to really look at the whole system and say, how will I move this along? Got it. Uh, and what are my values? Exactly. So that's in my domain. And there are a lot of people like me um, who would be looking at their system, um, their education ecosystem, um, or uh, their, their community that they serve. And they'd say, what are the things I want to put in place to make this place thrive? Can you talk a little decisions? Yeah, go can, ahead. Can you talk a little bit about your particular ecosystem and what are the what are some of the challenges and potentials? I can. I may go around it and go back to your original question. Is that okay? Go for it. Okay. So I want to talk just for a minute about the last year and how I got involved in some advocacy work. Um, cause I think that will also illuminate, we're sort of, we're inching our way toward Washington DC, aren't we? And we're recording this interview, um, just as the Congress will be considering some major legislation on childcare. So Ooh. let's inch our way there. Let's okay. do it. <laughs> let's do it. So, uh, um, a year ago, which was, you know, the first few months of the pandemic, uh, I found myself seeing some posts on social media about, um, different bills that the Congress was considering to give relief to the child care sector. And I would see them and people would say, oh, click this button to write to your representatives or do you want help for child care now? Click here. Mm-hmm. And I would just sometimes repost them on one of our social media channels. But I realized I, I didn't have any idea what was really going on. And sometimes I'd see it from this source or that source. And sometimes it would be talking about Uh, a bill, a particular bill, and sometimes it would be talking about another bill. So I just started emailing some friends on the same email chain saying, 
do you know what this is about? And they, we would all sort of cobble together little bits of information, but none of us really knew the full picture. And we started to, we said, let's, let's just get together to talk about this and all share the teeny bits of information that we have. Mm -hmm. And um, we started doing that and recruiting other people who were interested. And we ended up having calls once a week through the fall uh, and starting to really talk about what are our values, what do we want, what's in common between us, and what's going on in the Congress. And we, we started to name this little group. We had um, the Hebrew term Shema Kolenu, which literally means hear our voice. But at the time, we were, it was really about hearing our voices and collecting voices in the field. Yeah. And I'm giving you this teeny story to say, like, now I'm slightly smarter than I was then and more knowledgeable. And now I have a whole crew around me uh, that shares information together and is building a vision of what we want and what's the role of the federal government in our work as early childhood educators. And what I learned in this process is that you just got to policy has something to do with, you know, being an advocate, excuse me, has something to do with finding what's important to you, finding other people who have similar things that are important to them, talking, sharing knowledge, listening to what's actually happening in the field, and slowly, methodically, and with mistakes, uh, and with a feeling of fraud, you know, fraudulence <laughs> as you go along, and like you'll never understand it, um, building a sense of boldness, finding others way beyond your sector who may be allies, um, and then all making its way toward where we are today, which is, oh, today I can tell you what my values are that relate to early childhood policy and funding. Today I can tell you what has been the role of the U.S. government in uh, funding and making policies for children and families in the U.S. And today I can tell you, oh yeah, we really need really good federal policy and money to make early childhood education a field that really serves families and children and takes care of the teachers who work in the system. Amazing. Okay, wait, now I want to kind of change my question about your yeah. ecosystem. So let's talk about some of the, if you could, are, what are some of the issues that the field faces that, and you can include um, like, that issues that children and families face as they like pertain to child care and early and education for early childhood. Yeah. So you're, you're asking me about what are some of the issues? Yeah. Like specific, specifically, like what are some of the issues that, that you feel need to be taken care of? Um, and that others that, you know, feel are important and potentially like, are these any of the issues that are being discussed in Congress in these, right. in this legislation? So one thing I noticed the more I talk to people uh, in early childhood settings is that there's like a, I like to think of it as one big buffet of challenges <laughs> that the whole field faces, but everyone makes their own plate. <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. That's a good visual. So, you know, right. That there's a lot of reasons why you, you might have one challenge or another. Right. Um, Right. And I've expanded my own thinking this year through the pushes of some colleagues to say, look, I work in center based care. Exactly. Uh, 
but there are plenty of people and you know only half of americans really are getting their care from center-based care and the rest are using family child care which is another way of saying like a home daycare mm-hmm. um and some of these places places i've been referring to are very much uh licensed centers but there's unlicensed centers as well where children are going and also so many americans get their care from just informal friends and family networks you know my mother-in-law watches my son on monday right um i have my neighbor and i share like we take turns uh, taking care of the kids on mondays right a different day of the week um so and then really all the people who do you know, our essential workers in America are doing work on the weekends and in the evenings. So there's family child care that can support them on the weekend. There's there's night care. There's an incredible documentary that came out last year. Uh, no, excuse me. Yes, I think last year um, about uh, night care providers. Um, warm, comfortable homes where kids can go uh, with professionals to be taken care of while their parents are doing a janitorial shift or, or uh, a mom is working as a doctor overnight. Um, wow. They need care. So there's so many ways. And so we have to really expand ourselves to say, these are our allies. These are our people. And I do want to pause and say, I think there's been a divide over the years that private early childhood centers have wanted to make themselves sound fancier and not be considered daycare and want to be professionalized. And I think that had its place for many years. And there's a tension there because we want to show that we are providing the highest quality care and therefore you should love us, you should pay us, you should respect us. But also, let's say a person doesn't have all of those things and uh, they are running like just like a warm and friendly home where children can come and get care and they may not have even finished high school. Right. They're important too and they have rights and they're human beings and they're doing God's work taking care of children and families. So. Um, since the pandemic began, I've been feeling really bad about, I I don't have good feelings whenever I hear us trying to divide ourselves as a field between daycare and early childhood education. So you'll hear me using lots of different words like childcare, early learning. And I think we're trying to figure all that out as a field. No, I think that's Mm -hmm. such an interesting point that I, I really hadn't thought of. I think to me, like the types of people that I've seen at least are the same anywhere you go, like whether it's a professional setting or more informal, like in terms of there's like some people have credentials, some people don't like whatever. But that is that is such a good point. I mean, these are like children. They have to be like supervised at some like, you know, they need care. Um, So we're and we're all doing Mm -hmm. that. So it does, it makes sense what you're saying. Well, let's talk more about some of these issues on the buffet. Yeah. Uh, right. So, you know, some of the, the obvious ones, I mean, the number one that we're thinking about right now, right. Is, is compensation for educators. Hi. Yes. That's right. Like, there's like, the children are important, but can I get some, some payment please? <laughs> oh my gosh. I would like to not be, I'm not speaking for myself, but our educators would like to, or maybe I am. <laughs> we would like our educators to not all have to be on public assistance in order to pay their bills. It's insane. It's I I'm it's, part of the reason I was so excited to chat with you is because I want information on this and was feeling overwhelmed on like where to start. But I 
I just feel like the, it's ridiculous. Like, how am I? And I was talking to a neighbor recently, and she asked me how my husband felt about me pursuing education because um, knowing that, like, it won't potentially be able to pay the bills. And I was like, <laughs> said how she posed it. Essentially, <laughs> because um, we were talking, I mean, it. There was more to it, but the reality of the situation is like, if I love working with children, if I love being a classroom teacher, there is literally almost no motivation, like monetarily, for me to to do that for an extended period of time. Because if I want to start my family, if I want to grow my family, if I want to move, if I like, I can't. There's not enough money. <laughs> That's why you need two people working. <laughs> yeah. And it's such an important job. Right. It couldn't be more important. I mean, we, right, all the research is telling us, especially those first three years of life and including up, you know, to age six, this is the most important work that there could be. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, there's the motivation piece that you're bringing up, right? Because money is a motivator and money also uh, is related to how society sees us. And that's how it feels to us. And you're also you're really hitting on the morale piece of it too, because you're saying money, but it's also about how does it feel to be in a profession that no one cares about. No, right? it's that's that is exactly what I'm saying. And like, I guess the the major part, like the whole conversation with my neighbor, really stemmed around me saying, well, my husband, who's in a job that makes more money right now than I do. Um, is the one who, in our dream of the way things could be, <laughs> would be the one who stays home. And because he doesn't like his work, he's not, like, as career-driven. And he wants to be home with kids and wants to do that sort of thing. And I am way more interested in my work, and I want to be in education. And it's, like, not a possibility... To support your family. To, yeah. Exactly. Right. So here we are talking about the money that makes it possible. And there was a time in some communities where this was just like a mother's day out, right? Picture picture in America where the middle class make enough money, where one, let's say you have a married couple, which that's not how many, many, many Americans live, uh, is in a married household. But we'll picture say, a yeah. time, right, but picture a time when someone could elect to go work for a couple hours a week uh, to be to socialize and have a profession um, and someone else could drop off their children for a couple hours of relief and this was pocket money i still meet some of these women and they're incredible and they'll say all the money i make from this job i do eight hours a week i donate to charity like incredible like i wish we had that was the circumstance for everybody yeah that's that's not, I mean, so that's wonderful, but that's just not uh, a possibility for the future. So when, yeah. and this is also where policy comes into play, right? So it's the people who have power. Do they really understand the voices and perspective of the people who don't? So a teacher. No, they don't. <laughs> how could no. you be making a quarter of a million dollars a year and really understand what it's like to be making $50,000 a right. year or right. $22,000 tw- yeah, a year? Yeah. You can't imagine that. You don't know what it's like to, you know, at the end of every month, not be able to pay all of your bills, having not gone out to dinner or 
you know, bought the groceries you wanted. You don't know. And possibly. And not to mention, I don't think they also know the what it is to be with a child all day and it not to mention like the energy that takes but just you know to do it in a way where you are providing a good environment it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of work and you want i i remember the day that i was thinking to myself if all of these people are uh are in our field of making so little money and we're dropping off our children with them think about the things that are on their minds during the day they're worried about, you know, can I afford to pay my, do I, can I pay this medical bill? Can I afford to go to the doctor? How will I make my rent payment? And that's, that's, uh, that's the kind of focus and attention that we desire to be on our children. But we set them up in this environment as a society in which they can't bring the level of focus that you're talking about, the kinds of patients right. to really support the kind of neural development that we want for kids and social development we want for kids at this age. A hundred percent. So, and I think if we wanted to be, I was just listening to Glennon Doyle talk all about uh, <laughs> about selflessness and how it's so awful that we tell women that that's the ultimate is to be selfless, and we don't want human beings to be selfless. We want them to have a self, right? Uh, you know, why we have to stop glorifying that. So, if we could all be selfless, we would, but we don't all have the ability to do that. We're not talking about going. We know we're not in it for the money, but we have to be able to pay our bills and be stable and secure so that we can provide stable and secure environments for the children. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. So when's that going to happen? How about <laughs> Great. Take- so let's talk. Go ahead. <laughs> can we take some money from like the like basketball players and football players? Yeah. Come on. I'm always like, they make so much money. They don't need all that money. I know. <laughs> That's why it's a great too. question. Okay, so <laughs> we can chat so that. how's that going to happen, right? So you know, there's there's many ways that you know we could make better efficiencies in our programs, right? We we sort of have a sense of that, and that's something that we've been working on in the Chicago Jewish community. Like, what do we know about the different variables that make it possible to at least have a center that breaks even, uh-huh. right? And there's things like making sure you have low occupancy costs, making sure that all of your classrooms are full to the capacity that you set. So you don't start the year having too few children in your classroom so that you're not bringing in every dollar you can. Right. But even when we get, account for all of these efficiencies, there's just not enough money to do the work. And I, I do want to, it's important to me that I say here that there are places that are making profits on this. So those profits, there has to be some questions about the ethics of those profits. Wait, they're making profits off what? Well, I'll give you some examples. Let's say an early childhood center sits in a larger um, community center or it's a part of a larger organization of some kind, maybe a, maybe a church or mm-hmm. a house of worship, right? And let's say the program does so well, it's so full uh, that there ends up being a little bit of surplus at the end of the year. Yeah. What happens to that surplus? Where does it go? Does yeah. it go to pay? Does it go to pay for another program that's a loss leader? Like maybe it goes to subsidize the tennis program, or it goes to subsidize um, some other part of the larger mission of the okay. organization. Okay? okay, but it's not getting reinvested in the early childhood center in most cases. Yeah, or the teachers. 
Right. So, but we still haven't gotten there yet on the teachers yet because we're going to still need more money to talk about that. Right now we're talking about where's the basic flow today. There's not enough money today in the system to be able to pay teachers better. But there are some pockets where we could be paying them a little better, right? So some places are reaping a surplus. Where's that going? And in a paradox, which, you know, there's many of them in our field. One paradox is that uh, some of the best providers of health care in um, early childhood education uh, for their staff are the large corporations like a Bright Horizons or um, like a big national chain or a regional chain. You're right? talking so about providing health care for... For their employees. Yes, okay. Right, so if you're a teacher in a national um, child care chain, yeah, you might be getting better benefits and maybe a better hourly rate than other places. Right. Okay. And you have access, because of a lot of venture capital that probably went into the process at the beginning, you have access to um, this large uh, pool that uh, you're a part of a large pool of employees, so you can have better access to health care and some other things. Okay. But at the end of the day, there's shareholders who are getting the profits from this national chain. Right. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, more money in allows you to have some scale and get better benefits. But on the other hand, there's there's money in this for right. people and, who are shareholders. And they're just looking at like, you know, what are what are the average what is an average childcare worker making hourly or salary wise to make to make the salary, right? They're doing whatever they can because they'll do whatever their market demands. So if their market demands that they have a certain level of credentialing, let's say in the Atlanta market, then they'll make sure they have that. And if they see they can't get people hired because the school down the street's paying more, then they'll increase their wages. They're all about the market and their shareholders. So there's some surplus and profit there, isn't there? Yeah. So, okay. So there's some ways we could be like scraping together a little bit better. But then we need... We need more money. We need more, 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 more money. And right. where could it come from? It can't come from the parents, okay? We it has are to like, come from the federal government. It, it has to come, right. It can come through, what are our choices here? We have the federal government, and then we have philanthropy. So we could be bringing in those two more successfully uh-huh. and in more major ways. Uh. Um, right? But, and it's not just money. It also has to go with some policy pieces, which I want to touch on. Yeah. So it's like really good, smart um, federal policy, and then it will come down to local and state policy, but also money. But we need right. a ton of money to make this work. This is a public good, early childhood education. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's, we wouldn't expect that like someone out of their goodness of their own heart, I live on Belmont Avenue in Chicago. I'm not just going to like rally my neighbors to like fix a pothole on my street. No, yeah. like I pay taxes. Someone whose job it is is going to figure out when the potholes have to get, you know, filled on my street. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I, like I can't as an individual citizen figure that out with my neighbors. Come on. Totally. So it's a public good. Like what could be a greater public good? It's like this little investment in these little humans right now and their budding families and it will make a huge return huge uh, in our society huge right it's everything so that's what the role of the government is um to figure those things out so we got to look there and i want to make sure we haven't is there are there other of the issues we want to touch on before we talk about what this could look like yeah um compensation yeah we have compensation (laughs) i think what are the affordability? Yeah, affordability. We, we, did, we did affordability for families, and with compensation too, we want to make sure we're talking about um, 
uh, money in your salary and then the range of benefits that would yeah. enable you to retire happily later. Yeah. Um, we want to be thinking about equity. So we want to be really asking, what does that mean? And asking some questions going ahead about, well, what should the pay gap be between the highest earners and the lower earners and uh, the people who do administration and who don't, people of color, uh, men, women, uh, and some of those pieces. Mm -hmm. And also, this is a really hard job. So remember I described to you like in the 80s, working for 10 hours a week, making pocket money? Yeah. Uh, That was like an awesome job, wasn't it? It took some of your skills you might have had as a parent or as a childhood babysitter, the social, you only work 10 hours a week. Right. Okay. So that's not how most teachers work now. No. No. They work so hard with really, really minimal, if any, breaks. Mm-hmm. They work tons of hours a week and in, in a schedule that's completely incompatible with their own child care needs. <laughs> yeah. Right? How could you possibly drop off your child at a child care center when you're the one who's working when at a child care center? Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to like, have better working conditions. Yeah. As yeah. part of it too. Yeah. Okay. So better working conditions. So compensation, better working conditions, like affordability for families. What about like access for families? Yeah. So like, right. So families need to be able to have a, a, a high quality center that they can yeah. get to. You know, there's wait. Right? I feel like there's like wait lists. Like I'm actually looking into daycares for my son right now, and there's just like wait lists upon wait lists. So like, you know, you might not even get in with the time you need, and you know, right. So like, you have to like go to like you know like Plan B. And thinking <laughs> about access, like maybe it's about. Um, making sure that there's more quality programs Mm -hmm. so that or like that's more i know there's like head start and things like Mm -hmm. that and i've worked like access like in your neighborhood you know say the family doesn't have a car or exactly yeah yeah so it's like you want to make sure that there's a high quality center that you can reach within a reasonable amount of time that you can afford that has the hours that meets your family's needs, mm-hmm. that's open the number of months your family needs, right? Like, cause we're, st- we still sort of still sit on a school year calendar, but nobody works on a school year calendar except for teachers. Yeah. So um, you need that too. And, and you also need a place that can attend to all of your child's needs. You know, if you have a child with a, a, a feeding issue or who hasn't learned to use the toilet, you know, by, by three years old, like, is right. there somewhere that that child can go? What about mm-hmm. your other children? Um, and what about what about those hours that you're working as well? Whoa. So yeah, there's a lot of pieces layers, here. And, layers. And we can <laughs> we can handle complexity. Um, I'm crying. But, yeah. <laughs> um you know, and also just wanna say uh, that this is just like the society that we've built here. And part of our answers can also be, you know, we don't have to lump everything on early childhood to fix all the problems of the world, right? We're also ta- looking at this is all related to how we don't live in villages anymore. You know, that we it takes a village to raise a child, but we have no village here. We don't mm. all talk to our neighbors. We don't all help each other. Um, mm. So there's things that we want as a society, and we can't force early childhood to fix all of them. But, but I will do? say, I will say that if you're willing to wait, you know, and you invest in early childhood and like really invest in it in the long run, society will be better as a whole, I believe, because or more, I don't want to say better, but more aligned with like the the 
maybe with doing good. Lindsay, Martha, we have an amazing new sponsor along with our awesome sponsor, the Jewish United Fund. We are also working with American Jewish University or AJU this season. Um, and they've got an amazing offer to share with you. Um, they want you to have the opportunity, educators, to earn your early childhood education degree online with the School for Jewish Education and Leadership at AJU. Whether you are looking to complete your bachelor's degree or start a master's program, you will learn the skills, creativity, and leadership you need to advance your career in early childhood education. American Jewish University has been training educators for the last seven decades. Take the first step in advancing your classroom and administrative expertise by contacting us today at www.aju.edu forward slash education. Educating the educators who teach our children is our passion. This is what they're saying, not what we're saying. I mean, it is what we're saying too, but... <laughs> Educating the educators who's, who teach our children is AJU's passion and ours. Visit the School for Jewish Education and Leadership of American Jewish University online today at the same location. Lindsay just said www.aju.edu forward slash education. We will also be posting all of that information in our blog so that you can access it there. Thank you so much. I love that. I mean, to me, that's some real policy thinking, which is, you know, this is how I hypothesize we could affect the change that we want is by making this big, bold investment today. Actually, it'll set in motion the society that we want to happen. And then we won't, it'll fix some of the underlying issues. Right. Yeah, I like that. But that's interesting about villages and, and just the way we live too. like, you know, we've evolved in that it use having those resources and now we just don't so there are some things that we're just not going to get and like kind of how we're saying or you know some people have their in-laws helping out well some people have nobody they're just alone out there and where they live um so it is kind of hard to no i love what you're saying though i mean you're just making me think like that's why we love our work so much i mean that's what a question i throw back at the two of you is just that what is the value proposition of this work? It's not just about the child, right? It's like, it's that we are creating community. Um, and l let me talk for a moment, just a little bit about Head Start. Yeah. Um, just to say that, you know, there are some really signature pieces of policy um, that the U.S. has developed in the last 115 years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Head Start is one of the signature pieces of that legislation. Um, and from, as I understand it and have learned with some teachers myself, um, Head Start is actually a really incredible uh, idea of a program. It, you know, it grew out of the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, and it really was looking at all the ways to support the children and families needed support and said, like, let's build centers that are like connecting families to all the resources that they need. Let's visit the children at home. Um, let's make sure that we're advising families on all the things they could possibly need. So Head Start does give us, you know, some, um, no, that's the framework know, to look at. The framework of Head Start is, is wonderful. Like just all the ideas there. I think it goes back to resources and compensation because they're all, I mean, not they're all at all. I've, I've only been to one or two centers. Um, but I, 
have seen that it's the lack of of pay and the lack of resources and good professional development and opportunities um it's it's making it so the great framework is like operating on like a bare minimum you know um and so it's not awful it's not bad at all but it's just not i don't know that's just well, my this stick is on where, it. like a great idea like right so you have a great idea and then how does it live over time so mm-hmm. one of the great things about head start is that it was very much like people in, in communities could build their own center so you were more likely to have you know people of color running centers for kids of color right um so there was a lot to that and then over time what happens to a good policy that's well-intentioned like small this is what always happens right a small well-intentioned choice you know can have some really bad implications over time right so some of the ways that in in federally funded early childhood programs you know how do we make how will we decide how many dollars go to each program okay well we'll do it per child maybe and we'll do it by the number of days the child comes to school okay well well, that's a problem if you know you're in a pandemic yeah or or if or if the community like i mean if you're looking at it nationally i don't know what the numbers are but that's what i'm saying like i had many of my children with very inconsistent attendance because of their parents situations yep Right. So that's like a very teeny tiny policy decision um, that got made that probably made sense at the time. But then how do these things get amended? And then it raises process. Right. So how do you make sense for the community? Like, is that a good policy for the community that they're in? You know, that they're making it for. But if it's made federally, they're not thinking that way at all. It's just like blanket, though. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, I feel that's one of the things that I've learned in this process is, you know, it really is a federalist country you know we have these 50 states we have so many localities and so we just it's it's a mountain of of complexity everywhere that you look so then like how would you fix something like that so you're saying that let's say you have a potential great program yeah some policy pieces that aren't right so then you need like a a, a tapestry of of advocates all around the country in all different types of positions talking to each other in grassroots ways and informal ways about how what the problems are so right now like the different channels i'm involved in people are talking a lot about uh reimbursement rates for schools right so if they're not getting reimbursed for the certain number of days that kids are supposed to be in school then they don't have enough money to put toward the staffing Mm. um so how does that get changed a bunch of people who are on the ground are reporting their complaints to one another they're building coalitions together they're getting the word out to their local representatives Uh, they're getting the word out to their federal representatives and all these stories are just uh you can just see them creeping all over the country in all different ways and then right now a lot of those pieces have made their way to advocates who are the formal people let's say who have some power and are liaising between uh, the real power brokers and those on the ground mm-hmm. to try to say, we need to fix A, B, and C. Uh, and then you have these moments when these, these things come to Washington, like when Head Start was developed, or um, I want to say this properly, you'll have to edit me well. Uh, this uh, Another major piece of early childhood legislation that's called CCDBG, which yeah. is the Child Care and Development Block Grant. What is that? Oh, let me tell you. Um, 
I'm just putting the pull up in my notes properly. No worries. Um, let's see what year CCDG was. I think it was in the, I mean, I'm pretty sure it was in the Bush administration. Mm. Um, this, yeah, 1990. Oh, oh okay. The, Bush first, one. the first book. Yeah. This is considered today, CCDBG is considered the, the linchpin uh, of American early childhood policy. It's really, it's really, it's the center point. Um, and it is, uh, it is a way of really getting subsidies to low income and working parents uh-huh. to get the kind of quality childcare that children need and deserve. And the child care can also encompass a lot of care up until age 13. So if you think about after school programs and with this giant amount of money, CCDBG, that goes to the states, uh, there are a lot of supporting pieces that come with it. So you can picture things like quality rating systems or um, uh, the opportunity for teachers to get reimbursed for going back to school for early childhood education. Yeah. Um, like lots of teeny little programs that could be in there. I have to fact check myself to get that one just right. But uh, it's a big piece of legislation. And so then when, for example, we had this pandemic and the federal government needed to pump relief dollars into the field, they would go through CCDBG and say, let's just push more money into this portal that we already have. So I would say one way that I picture this whole operation is that you get these precedents in law um, that come from Washington, like Head Start. Yeah. Um, uh, I learned last a few weeks ago that there's like almost 60 different programs that support early childhood education that come from the federal government. And they're tucked in all these little programs and then a couple big ones like CCDBG and Head Start and Early Head Start. Uh-huh. Um, and we're hoping to have another really big one right now. That's the moment we're sitting in, a major one that would encompass free early childhood education for three and four-year-olds and many other supports. Whoa. Yeah, that's where we're coming up to now. We can talk about that too. But anyway, what happens is yeah. these there are these big portals and um, those become precedents and money can go through some of those channels that get created um, when these big new programs become available. What I recently learned from um, a colleague uh, and teacher, Helen Blank, who's a longtime advocate in the field, she said, you think you want a really simple early childhood policy that is that makes sense and is not fragmented and is really straightforward. She said, you think you want that and you think you're overwhelmed by the complexity of what American early childhood policy really is, but actually it's better this way. She said, because if you have only one thing, then it can be taken away. A new administration comes and says, forget it. Hmm. But if you have it tucked everywhere, then it's safer. Oh, that's so interesting. So you really need to kind of, it has to be piecemeal, like throughout other, throughout different programs, because otherwise it's like erasable. It can be cut. Yes. And what the, I mean, the, I mean, I've been at this maybe a year, but what I learned from other advocates is that the people who do this over their entire career advocating for early childhood you know, they never sit still. There, there are years when there's big opportunities, like there could be this year in the Biden administration. But then there are years when you have a president that doesn't want to do anything. So right. you have to find teeny tiny wins that add up to uh, really making an impact. And so some years are slower and some years are faster, but there's always room to make small bits of progress. Wow. 
That's amazing. Um, let's. I I want to hear about this newer legislation that's coming into Congress, and I want to also talk about how can your average amazing teacher or yeah. childcare worker or whatever get into advocacy. Cool. Um, okay, so the moment we're in right now. When do, when will this podcast come out? Like in. Great question, Lindsay. <laughs> well, no, we were hoping to start dropping like when school started, like end of August yeah. into September. Okay, cool. So um, ideally September. All right. Is we could be on the precipice of something or nothing in September. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so overall, right now we're in a moment and there are these moments in American history, it seems, where something major could happen for child care and we may be in that moment right now um where it looks like the um president biden's infrastructure bill will be passed physical infrastructure like Mm -hmm. roads and things like that and then what what is being teed up next is a big a big package called the american families plan you can read more about it we can link to it on um yeah the white house website Um, By the time this podcast comes out, there will likely be text of a bill that will be available, Um, but it's it's being discussed in big ways. And over the last two years, uh, different people in the House of Representatives and the Senate have put forward bills. Um, There's a series of bills that we can link to, um, like the Child Care for Working Families Act, a different bill that came from Senator Elizabeth Warren for Universal child care and there's a lot of talk about what what could what could be something bold that would really serve families yeah and some of the elements that i want to mention in the american families plan really are about extending education opportunities for all uh in the early years and also in the college years so president biden's talking about two years of free community college for all americans oh yeah and two more years uh of free education for three and four-year-olds Amazing. So that's being called really like universal pre-K, which really means uh, what they call in other states pre-K three and pre-K four. Oh, got it. Now, when we say pre-K, there's a lot of nuance to this, and this is where, like, we want to get those details right. Right, because we call it at our school nursery and junior kindergarten. Right. Right. And we can start to worry that uh, when you say, when you call it pre-K, first of all, I, we all get a little anxious. Like, we don't want to make this pre-anything. Like, is this all a preparatory program for, you okay. know, elementary education, <laughs> which is not yeah. perfect anyway? Right, um, right. But, That's actually a uh, great point. We don't want that. So, you know, we use these terms with a grain of salt, but they we are aware of the complexity. So, Jeez. and we also don't want them to all sit in our public schools only. You know, so where I sit with some of um, my fellow advocates is uh, I'm an advocate for a mixed delivery system for expanded early childhood education, which means that if you want to run a public threes or fours program, you could run it in your elementary school, your public elementary school. You can maybe run it in your private elementary school. Mixed delivery. Um, right. You could run it. You, But it basically means you want to lift up the existing uh, sector as it is and yeah. like pump money into the existing sector right so uh, don't to build it up instead of saying hey let's just add a, a pre-k3 and a pre-k4 to every chicago public school 
Got which, it. Oh, right, interesting. Right. And why wouldn't that necessarily be a bad, good idea? Well, I think we think that, well, first of all, early childhood is not elementary education. And the more we will stick it together with elementary education, the more I think we have to be really concerned that it will start to look like the first year of an elementary right. school education. Right. And that's just not how kids' brains work at that age. Yeah. That's so like, interesting. So more towards academic and less like play-based. Right. It's just like yeah. it won't be a match for the, the brain development. Like right. there's a reason first, second, and third grade get lumped together and, you know, fourth grade, it just makes, it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second is there's a whole world of people who've made it their life's work to learn about children and serve children and families. And those are the people who should be getting funding totally. to, to do this work because they know what they're doing. Oh, that's so and, cool. Right. And we don't want to build a whole new system because we want to help children and families now. I see. So, well, it is. So it's looking at existing. A mixed delivery is looking at different. Um, existing programs. Yeah. Or existing way places that something could be built or you know, implemented and finding which would be the most finding different ones and not necessarily just one of the same kind um, to deliver those, I guess in this case, like early learning centers or early care centers. Yeah. And it's like Lindsay was asking before about access. I think it was you, Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So we want to make sure that we have multiple different ways of offering this stuff so that it can pop up on every corner um, let's think about the pandemic and how we we gave out uh, uh, vaccines in every place, right? Yeah. You could get them at Walgreens. You could get them at Costco. Uh, you the place could get them I got it. The place I got it does like lipo, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, it used to be a car dealership. It used to be a car dealership. <laughs> now it does lipo. <laughs> I think I got the vaccine. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> Oh my gosh! But you're, everyone keeps giving you compliments that you're looking so so fit. Yes, I'm so so thin now. Uh, there's an industry for you. Well, we want to do exactly that, but without mm-hmm. the light bulb. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, with with this also, so we want to pop it up everywhere. So if if there's a home care provider on your neighborhood on your block, um, we want to be able to help that person. If someone's running night care um, in a licensed program, we want to help them also, and maybe and some places already do this, maybe if your mother-in-law is helping you on Mondays, then your mother-in-law should get a stipend from the government for doing this public good. So, you, so you're so you essentially talking about having people in different childcare areas or arenas or whatever, like applying almost or like registering to receive this, or receive like money, money yeah. receive extra. Yes. Cool. Yes. So picture at a place like, like you, I'm not saying this is exactly how it will go. Right. But it's easy for me to imagine that a private parochial, a private faith-based elementary school where you two work, work that also has an early childhood center, right? (laughs) Yeah. So it's easy for me to imagine that the three and four-year-old programs, um, families can attend those three and four-year-old programs for free. Uh, and let's say the state will pay six hours of free schooling, but your parents need eight hours. Okay, so then parents can pay privately or philanthropy can pay privately for those other hours. Um, And there could be in New York when they've rolled out um, universal threes and fours, uh, they 
the unions worked very hard to push for uh, to push for pay parity between the educators of three and four year olds and the educators in the K to twelve public system. Interesting. So it would provide enough money that the teachers could be really well compensated. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, so this American Families Plan also compensates teachers? Or Yes. Yes. Is so that's like part of the yeah. package. Yep. Whoa. Now, but there's, first of all, not all the details are there yet, but what are we, so you've heard my first pitch and already your brain is thinking, okay, so what would that mean? Or what does it mean for teachers? What would we need within the policy to make sure that it pays teachers and that it actually fixes the buffet of problems? that we lined up before. Right, there needs Those to, are some of the details, right? There needs to be like so much data collection, there needs to be and like systems to do that within, right? Right. And what kind of freedom will you have and what kind of freedom won't you have? Will you be able to teach um will you be able to teach Jewish education in your center? Um you probably won't or you'll be able to teach a secularized version of that. And can you live with that? Wait, what? See? Okay, here we go. Yeah, Do you think the federal government, government should give money to for religious to for religious yeah. education? Because right now it's not religiously funded at all. Well, the way I do it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I yeah, no, that's true. Because I don't want money going to the schools that are like throw out the science book, kids. You know that's what right. I mean? <laughs> that's right. So. You, then you start to, so I mean that's a really strong principle right church and state and we don't want mm. to build a system that's just going to get overturned by the supreme court later it's not uh, a good idea okay untie untie the knot in my brain yeah, please like, rewind <laughs> now you're like I'll never get paid yeah. <laughs> wait a second interesting okay so is so is what I what Lindsay and I do right now in danger not in danger but in danger of not getting it just might not be part of this bill. Part well, of this what would happen is, first of all, we would advocate for the best possible conditions that make sense for each of us. Yeah. And also that makes sense for everybody. And we'd have to look at what that means for us. But I also think, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like, yeah. aren't the a huge and vast like amount of early childhood care and program or early childhood care programs, like, aren't they within churches or like religious uh like settings synagogues or churches yeah like isn't that like that's got to be a humongous uh you know portion of all the programs out there totally and right it absolutely true i can yeah. give you some examples from new york from educators i've heard in new york and there are many states really that have rolled out um, public pre-k um, right. like public four-year-old programs mm-hmm. so we have some examples from those states um that have done this work so like doesn't in Georgia, CPS, where I'm from, go ahead. I thought doesn't CPS have uh, public pre-K? Yeah, it's not like yeah. universal, right? It's not right. There's like a limited number it's of spots. Very limited. You can't. I tried. For, I tried. It's really hard to get in. That's <laughs> okay. Well, and we have these precedents we talked about, like Head Start, right? So wherever your Head Start is run, they're not teaching religion in your Head Start. No, they're not. Yeah, but right? it's out. It can be out of a religious institution. It can. Absolutely. That's where yeah. I was. Yeah, I was in a church. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so you, you've answered your own question. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Whoa. But you have to think about it. So in Georgia, where um, the lottery, the lottery, imagine this, they started a lottery and the lottery pays for a bunch of kids to go to college for free in Georgia. 
Whoa. And it also pays for all four-year-olds to have access to a free early childhood education. Wow. So the lottery, there's a policy for you. So <laughs> when they rolled this out, um, many Jewish schools looked into this to see, oh, we should do this. And really could not get, could not stomach the idea of not having an ark uh, holding uh, a replica of the Torah in, inside of it or not saying prayers or prayers before you eat. And so they really decided we're not going to do this. Right. So what happened to them? So there are still, you know, programs, but many of them, the four-year-old programs, they, they canceled their four-year-old programs because all the four-year-olds in their area started going to the public pre-Ks. And, and let's also say what that means financially. When you run an early childhood center, which has very narrow profit margins to begin with, you need the four-year-old program. That's where you make the most money, and that helps to subsidize your infant care that Lindsay needs for her little one. <laughs> yeah. Right? My brother. So, so it's problematic. So, But when by the time this came to New York many years later, um, public pre-K, um, let's say a, a center that I spoke with said that at first they, they said, okay, well, we won't run a public pre-K. And then they dramatically uh, lost enrollment at the Mm -hmm. four-year-old level Mm -hmm. and they said okay let's try it because we have no choice and they said okay we won't offer we'll take out we'll keep teaching hebrew as a language but we won't say blessings we won't do prayers and they did it and they figured it out and it was very uncomfortable for them but they figured out how to do it Um, and they grew their enrollment tremendously they increased their teacher pay and what they built instead is a more robust and and i heard this from a different provider there too a more robust family engagement program that's after school that builds community and builds religious involvement so one school said on monday mornings i invite the parents before school to come do havdalah with the children And we all do that. And then on Friday after school, we invite everyone to a Tachabat where we have dinner and we sing songs. So like outside of school hours. Right. Yeah. So that's how they did like a workaround. Well, okay. Let me ask you what you think of this as somebody who, you know, could potentially see their, their fields dramatically or the people they serve (laughs) dramatically just like become extinct if, if that were to affect us. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> um, what I see is some places will, I feel that my job will not, will be to support people and figure out what makes sense for their center. Yeah. And that every center will make their own choice. Yeah. Um, and I think it's my job to say I wholeheartedly support a major investment in early childhood education from the federal government. Yeah. Uh, and I think in a school that's going to be a private school that you don't have a lot of financial issues yeah. um, for families, mm-hmm. you know, keep your program as it is, you know, and you probably don't even need the headache of all the paperwork this is going to involve. Yeah. Right. Um, but in a place, but I can see us bringing in all kinds of new people and supporting the community in all new ways if we take this federal funding. But I can tell you a lot of places won't take it. That's so interesting. I love the idea of adding different programs individually as centers to kind of like supplement, you know, your what what is left of your program if you were to take the funding. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. But I also see that like not every program needs the funding. Yeah, exactly. Like again, like where where is the need in the community? You know, like what community? You gotta look at like each individual community and like 
where's the, like the real need for the funding and where is it maybe not? Yeah, it's true. I also think, and I've wrestled with this most of my adult life, you know, we, we, there's a real question about, right. We're starting to talk about public and private school here Yeah, Mm -hmm. and who in America can afford a private education. Oh my God. I mean, that is a teeny, 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 tiny slice of the world. Mm-hmm. It really um, is. And also, like, I can't afford it. I wouldn't be able to afford it. And I, I work in a private school. I can't afford it either. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, we, that's like a whole we can talk thing. about our little enclaves and what does it mean. Yeah. And we can, we can really work with philanthropists to say, right. hey, you're going to have to give more than you ever gave before. We'll tell you how to make you know, a, a religious education available to these kids. Or by the way, maybe we'll say we are going to build after school programs right. that are really great for these young kids mm-hmm. that are the highest quality. Um, and that's what we need to do after these programs, you know, so a Martha or a Lindsay comes and shows up at three o'clock after these programs have ended and gives the children like two hours of really, really special time um, engaging with their Jewish heritage. Right. So there's other ways, but we have to really, I think it, I think we are in a place between the pandemic and this policy and um, all the work of Black Lives Matter to really be saying, hey, has it been so good to be so separate from the public schools? Has that been good? And is it good to be so separated from the problems of our community and and to be so far from our village. So I think there's a lot of ethical questions for us ahead. And I think early childhood is just the beginning of it. But we, we need to be really thinking about what's our responsibility and what are our values. And remember, there's a time when Jews, like public school was a Jewish value because it would allow us to um, be a part of the community. Right. It's so uh, interesting. Yeah, that's this whole other thing, just like within the Jewish community, like the different areas that you run into you know you know all different kinds of thinking um but okay let's think about how can we be advocates how can i be how can i help (laughs) what am i i'm making a picket sign right now i'm writing it but wait but i don't know what it says or where i'm going (laughs) i feel like we could talk about this for like much much longer but we do want to like, yeah. No, you let's do it. You, you know, have well, first of all, too. this is one of my favorite games is what would your picket sign say? Yeah. Like if you only had, and if you only had a bumper sticker, like what is the thing that you'd want to shout right now? Pay me like a doctor. Pay me like a doctor. <laughs> all right, next. What else you got? That's perfect. Keep what, going. What about you, Lindsay? Oh my God, I don't know. I'm now frozen up. That was mm. Pay me like a doctor. My job's important. Yeah. Yeah. You need me. Yeah. Um... You know, children have rights. Yeah. Families have rights. Yep. So what do we do? Do we tattoo this onto our bodies? Oh, that's great. A tattoo. That's really the That's, <laughs> that's the, the answer on your forehead. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that. Um, bill, billboards. No. Okay. So the first thing is we have to be constantly educating ourselves. And what does that mean? You asked you put in your show notes for me about uh, some resources, right? So everybody should sort of get themselves subscribed to a couple of places so that you have some little channel yeah. that is feeding you stuff. Okay. Because you, you'll be able to see that, like the First Five Years Fund or the National Women's Law Center. So you, or, you've provided us some of that stuff? Sorry, yeah, I haven't looked mm-hmm. at it yet. Okay, perfect. No, I will. Oh, I will. awesome. Um, Thank you. And we'll, uh, we'll 
put those up on our blog for sure. Yeah, the National Council for Jewish Women. You want to you want to be following these, and also NACI. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. a, a colleague uh, Danielle Ewan taught me a few weeks ago that you know you can be a member of NACI even if you're not a school that's getting accredited by them, but they mm-hmm. still really are the voices of providers with representation in Washington. Oh, yeah. So you want a place to be able to get stuff, right? So you want to get it in your email. You want to get it on social media. Right. Okay. So that'll give you like, that will help you know where you are in time and space and what is happening. Exactly. And you want to find, you know how, uh, when, when I was a kid, that expression was big uh, of, um, think globally, act locally. Uh-huh. Right. So you want to think about what you've got locally and you want to kind of close your eyes and picture your ecosystem and you want to know people who are getting things done in your area. So if you live in Chicago, for example, you'll want to say and you're a Jewish early childhood educator, you'll say, OK, I want to be in network with other people who do what I do. Right. I, I want to find in my state. I want to know more about how my state does this. So who do I know? that can help me know that so in your case you can connect people like at the jewish federation in chicago you'll say Mm -hmm. i care about early childhood who do i talk to and (laughs) then when you when that's me yeah (laughs) just to be clear but you want to find that in every place so like right now i'm very busy saying who are the other people in illinois who i've got to know who are the other people like that are talking about this all the time so at federation we have a lobbyist we have Ooh. lobbyists in Washington and in um, the Capitol and Springfield and um, in the city. So when I want to know something official, I have a line into the power players. So like when a school calls me and says, I'm having a huge licensing challenge. I don't know anybody. Can you help me work through this problem? I can say, yes, I can connect you through our people, our representatives to get you some help. So that's key. You want some official channels. Hmm. And a lot of these networks were really activated during COVID. Right. And that happened for us in Chicago, too. Our directors never talked as much and huh. never knew what they needed as much as they did during the pandemic because mm-hmm. they suddenly had a need to ac- they needed to access information and understand it, and they needed to communicate their needs back. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's another thing, just like accessing information. <laughs> right. I think it's right. really important. Uh, I think that for like a for a teacher... I think the place to start would be to check out some of Anna's resources right. and to educate. So, you know, look at how you can connect with them on social media or through email. I know NACI is like a paid subscription um, with mm-hmm. some good things that come out of it. Um, but they if, have a policy page too that you can look at, anyone could look at. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. They're like a great free resource too. Um, but I'm saying if you want like, you know, something funneled to you all the time. Um, and then I don't know, like, I guess when you, I, I think that when we think of advocacy, we think of honestly going out there and like marching, (laughs) but I don't, I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like knowing is a huge part of the being aware and informed is like just such a huge part of being an advocate. And then like when you don't see those, your values being, um, put into action or when you see something against your values being put into action, that's when you can be vocal about it and having those people that you know um, that are channels to the people who actually have power 
is really good for those times when you need to be vocal. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm, we're sort of building our little, uh, formula here together. So <laughs> it's, it's, you said knowing, um, having access to information and to these big formal channels. Mm-hmm. And then we need, we need local yeah. networks and chan- and formal channels too. So you need people. Right. Power is in number with a lot of this, too. Yeah. So when, when someone said, you know, you talked about marching, you know, it's not about you marching. It's about a big power. It's about a network saying tomorrow we're all going to march. Yeah. Yeah. And then we all come together. So getting earlier, I talked about how our group is called Shmakolenu and we've been calling it mm-hmm. Hear Our Voices. But literally it means hear our voice because that's what it's supposed to be about. It's the power of the singularity of voice. Which, by the way, it's a, it's a really difficult task because we all have different needs and different right. um, focuses. But together we have to develop one voice that we can bring. That's beautiful when you can do that. Yeah, but you can do that. I mean, when you really are in your most activated self, right? So right now, today, what you need to do is, I'll give you a link, but you need to write to your elected representatives. Yeah. Just get in the habit. Like, you're going to just be, like, ready to write to them or call their mm-hmm. office. And that's a first bold step, Right. It's oh, just calling it. your office and saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. I live in your district or I work in a school in your district. Every day I work with this number of three and four-year-olds and their families. And I can tell you, we need Fs. Yeah. And we want to thank you for why. Please huh. feel free to reach out to me if you have any more questions. But, you you know, and that's, that's what you bring. Like, you are the knowledge on the ground. And they need to hear from you. And then when you're at your most activated, and by the time your listeners are hearing this, this is what I think they'll be doing, is you do that and then you become a multiplier. So then you go and harass 10 of your friends and get them to do the same thing. And then you find ways to be comfortable with your own advocate's voice to talk to your school administration and then your parents in your community to say, hey, have you taken the time to open up your voice to tell your elected representatives why childcare is important to you. Wait a second. And I, yeah. Anna, you're saying <laughs> I can call up or whatever. You're going to send me a link and I'm going to find my local representative and I'm going to tell them. Leave a message. I'm going to leave a message, whatever. I'm going to email them. I'm going to call them and I'm going to say, I'm a teacher here. Like pay te- like I can talk about compensation. Oh my God. We should have started with this. <laughs> yes, you have to be, you need, first of all. Because I'll do that like up, right after this. <laughs> right, right now. And, and right, and we can put out a call to action with this uh, podcast. Yeah. yeah. Right now, we all, they all, they need to hear from us. Um, yes. Senators and our congressmen need to hear that we're their constituents and we know things. And with that information, this is how they can help. And then you need to get every single person you know to do that within the next number of weeks. And and now is the critical moment, right? Time, knowledge, you said we need knowledge. And the knowledge will tell us that right now is one of those very critical moments. And could we find a link that we can share with people so they can find their local? (laughs) I'm going to give it to you. A lot of these places, I'm going to give it to you today. And you just put in your zip code and it will just take you right there. There are times... When things are slow, when you right. should tell your elected representatives, yeah, send them quality letters and send them letters from the children and like talk to them about what matters to you. But right now, it's a time for quantity. 
right. Wow. Oh, I love that. Wow. And you can set goals for yourself. This is something I've been working on. And this is what advocates really do is they say to each other, this is my commitment. I'm going to tell all the women on my tennis team or I'm going to I'm going to five meetings in the next week and I'm going to make everyone stop and write to their representatives. Um, but- so you can set some goals for yourself, too. Okay, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, so wait a second. Steps. Well, more action step. <laughs> Say you want to be just a little bit more, like... Aggressive. Aggressive, <laughs> and you want to... Or you're just interested in, like, advocacy, like, in general. Like, and you want to take next steps into, like, learning more about, like, how to be an early childhood advocate or how policy is made. What Do you know a good place to start for that? Well, first of all, I think if, if this is a personal question, I'm happy to set you up personally however I can. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it is it is personal, but it also, I well, I guess like, it's, we're not done yet. it's coming <laughs> from a place of if someone is listening like me and is like, yes. oh, I'm interested, you know? Yeah, so look out for opportunities to take a course on the history of early childhood oh. policy and funding in the cool. U.S., Look out for those. It takes more time, but it's so complex. I just took one of these for myself this summer. No, that's insane. That's what I I know. I saw that one. It was so great. Oh, man. And boy, it was, there was so much to learn. So look for a course on that. Invest in your time so you really will feel that you have the fundamentals. That's one. Anywhere you can learn from any organization that does any advocacy work, you will learn, be able to learn, I think, the fundamentals of what it is to be an advocate and how to stand up and how to use your voice. Oh, I love that. Okay. That's another one. Anyone who's interested, like, within the Jewish community, whatever that means for you, um, I wholeheartedly invite you to get involved with Shemako Lenu, our Hear Our Voices initiative, and we try to network people and are you guys out. are you guys on social media? Are yeah, you can guys you, doing? Can you also like give us? The yeah, I can send you that? all that. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. We're just gonna put these um, all up. And then every once in a while, you can find um, a fellowship that takes early childhood educators and helps them become advocates. So I would sort of Google around that topic. Okay. Some, some colleagues cool. we know have done things like that, and some of the advocates I've met, that's what they do. And by the way, there's a whole world you can get a degree in right. uh, you know, an education policy. Right. That's crazy. Yeah, no, that's why I'm like, because yeah. this is such a huge world. And like, I know there's some people who are like, yes, I want to create change. I want to be an involved citizen. I want to, you know, call my people. I want to talk. I want to whatever. But then I know there are people who want to think about it in a more deep way. I don't know. Yeah. And can I say also there's a... Um, there's a, a webinar I can link you to that Amy O'Leary did. She's an advocate in Massachusetts. She did it for the Paradigm Project this year, walking through like what is it, how to lead an early childhood means you have to be an advocate. Okay, I so love things, that. And things we did not talk about today that mm-hmm. are for another time, I would say are, what does it even mean? Like literally, what does it mean to be an advocate? Like yeah. to, right? Like there's the soft Wait. skills of standing up for yourself. Yeah. But what I feel like I'm taking from this conversation is – there's something about the the future that asking yourself about the future you want to see and being bold in that and then being able to I just keep picturing some kind of channel between the people on the ground and the people in power. 
uh, and that, that seems key and also doing it together. Yeah. yeah. And I also just think too, voice. like for the people that have come into this, who, however you got into education, right? Like you're here this is you're doing really important work like really important work not just like oh what you do is so special it's like (laughs) no this is very necessary important important work take up space you need to stomp your feet and like say this i need this you know from from this from the community yeah this is one thing i heard from in this course i took this summer where one of the facilitators said Never in our wildest dreams did we think we would get the amount of support that we received from federal relief funding in the pandemic. And one of the presenters said, we just like told them what we actually needed to fix the problem and we got it. And we worked on it, right? And we, we lobbied and we pushed, but as so often we say, well, oh, anything would help, thanks. Mm-hmm. But instead, if we say, actually, we have a problem, this is what it would take to fix it. And we're not afraid to tell you. And we're not afraid to tell you that you should do this. Right. I love that. Huh. So interesting. There's so many questions that I have about, like, the history of advocacy. We're not going to get into them. And just, like, how it pertains to, like, education as it's, like, a mostly female-dominated. Okay. We might need need part two. Yeah. Part two, part two, part two. Okay. We've chatted with you And I do want to, somewhere here, please just put the... I, if it's okay, you'll decide if it's appropriate to put the disclaimer that I'm not, I'm not an expert in this. I'm going to say, about it. We're gonna and s- I have, I have, I'm doing the work like in a year, you'll be where I am, where you'll be, you'll say, I know very little. I better start learning and start committing time to it. And <laughs> that's where we all need to be. Like, yeah. I am, I'm within your zone of proximal development. Oh, I appreciate uh, that. And I have a long way to go. <laughs> Okay, perfect, perfect, perfect. I'm gonna, uh, you know what? You're like scaffolding to me, and I'm, I'm gonna get there. It's perfect. But um, no, I think, I think I'm gonna say you're a leader. You know, I mean, what this is, this is the true. You're a leader in in the field, and you you are the perfect person for us to start our journey and for us to help other people that listening listen to our podcast start their journey um on being an advocate for the field of early childhood there's a lot of reasons why this is so new for us and we've sat people who do nonprofit, you know private sector work in early childhood we have not received a penny of federal funding our entire careers it wasn't a part of us and it was just during the pandemic that federal funding started showing up on our doorsteps and that enabled us to think for the first time, wait, maybe big dollars could come in and maybe we would be involved. But for years, there's been a lot of reasons why we didn't get involved because we didn't think the federal government was going to be able to bring in this level of support. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's my way of forgiving us for not having done more. It's also, it's also like a great hopeful note to, and none because I wanted to say like you know what makes you hopeful and I feel like that's that's really that's nice you know like for the first time people are starting to see that and I think also the pandemic mobilized a lot more activists than ever mm-hmm. before like than yeah. than we had you know it showed people how to use their voices in little ways the work I mean I told you right before as we were getting on this call that I picked up my little one 
from her um, summer camp, her day camp. Uh-huh. And I got to see just those rare moments of seeing just such an amazing special school and program and teacher. Um, and that always brings me hope. And just the work day in and day out. I mean, the, the miracles are already happening on the ground. Um, we just now need to back fund them <laughs> so that they can continue because a lot of the specialness is already happening. And, you know, I think that we should all put, be pushing ourselves to provide the best possible experience for young children. And we're doing, I give us a B in, in early childhood education for that. Um, and a B is really good, but mm-hmm. let's get to an A plus because we can and we'll love it. Um, and leaders and, and, and as advocates, we're going to have to really work on funding it to make it possible. But at the same time, we've just got to keep pushing the vision um, for what could be and for whom. Oh my gosh, I um, love it. Yeah. Let's get mm-hmm. to an A. Let's hey, get what? an A! Is that your new picket sign? <laughs> yeah, that's my new picket sign. <laughs> Anna, thank you thank so you. much. You are thank you were a wealth of knowledge and just wisdom. Thank you both so much. Yeah, have a great afternoon. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.